All right, we are back. Let's just do a total mixed bag here, starting with something I pulled out of the old files. Headline, Cheney lobbies senators for torture ban exemption. And all I can say is, I'm just glad not to be discussing articles like that lately. Our good pal Gary Chu sent out some uh, interesting items lately, including this little statistic. German solar power plants produced a world record 22 gigawatts of electricity per hour equal to 20 nuclear power stations at full capacity. There's clearly some room to improve here in the U.S. of A, eh? And here's one that uh, I think should be reviewed. I've been sitting on since last April. Headline, China sees U.S. declining, analyst says. Piece from the New York Times by Jane Perlez notes that the senior leadership of the Chinese government increasingly views the competition between the United States and China as a zero-sum game, with China the likely long-range winner if the U.S. economy and domestic political system continue to stumble, according to an influential Chinese policy analyst. The piece in the Times notes a little bit later, China has mounting self-confidence in its own economic and military strides, particularly the closing power gap since the start of the Iraq War. In 2003, America's gross domestic product was eight times as large as China's, but today it is less than three times as large which seems to uh, run against the tide of the notion that uh, economies benefit by spending on the military, doesn't it? I mean, our tax dollars seem to go to wars in Asia, and while theirs are going into making more factories and they're prospering. Well, in some areas. You may have seen the headlines this past week about how uh, hackers are apparently uh, hard at work trying to steal American secrets, not just from the military, but also from corporations, and even local and state governments. Piece also from the New York Times, David Sanger, David Barboza, and Nicole Pelroth earlier this week, notes that on the outskirts of Shanghai in a rundown neighborhood dominated by a 12-story white office tower sits a People's Liberation Army base for China's growing core of cyber warriors. The building off Datong Road is the headquarters of PLA Unit 61398, a growing body of digital forensic evidence confirmed by U.S. intelligence officials who say they have tapped into the activity of the Army unit for years leaves little doubt that an overwhelming percentage of the attacks on U.S. corporations, organizations, and government agencies originate in and around the White Tower. And I hope you'll go on the web as I did and pull up a piece by James Fallows writing in The Atlantic asking, what do we make of Chinese hacking? This is worth a few quotes from. Noted Mr. Fallows, who we do need to get on this program in the future. Noted Fallows, which I'm going to excerpt. Chinese hacking, as reported in the lead front page story of today's New York Times, is fascinating. But is it really something new? Or merely our old friend, threat inflation? We're all working with limited info, but at first impression, this reads to me like something new, specifically in the degree of traceability to the Chinese military. But here's the background. Through the years, anyone who has looked into this topic has gotten used to threat inflation. Yes, public and private facilities in the U.S. and elsewhere are subject to nonstop electronic probes and assaults. Yes, a lot of attacks seem to come out of China. Still, I've heard time and time again how hard it is to tell how much reflects coordinated military actions and how much is from on-their-own hackers, rival corporations, and ordinary profit-seeking crooks. Apart from China, there's plenty else to worry about. When I did an Atlantic article about the problem three years ago, this is what I heard, to quote from the prior piece. The Chinese would be in the top three, maybe top two, leading problems in cyberspace. 
James Lewis, a former diplomat who worked on security and intelligence issues, told me. They're not even close to being the primary problem, and there is debate about whether they're even number two. Number one in his analysis is Russia, through a combination of state, organized criminal, and unorganized individual activity. Number two is Israel. The French are notorious for looking for economic advantage through their intelligence system. I was told by Ed Giorgio, who served as chief codemaker and chief codebreaker for the NSA. But the Israelis are notorious for looking for political advantage. But rather stunningly, the piece takes an abrupt turn a page later when it says the real problem for and with China, from which he cites the Chinese media, is that groundwater in nearly all Chinese cities is polluted, and that in about two-thirds of them it is severely polluted. Which he then says puts this whole thing in context, saying that environmental disaster is the gravest threat to China's continued development. Adding that's according to me, but it is not some wacko view. He adds, the Chinese government is trying very hard to deal with these problems and it's even unleashing the press to do more. The question is whether anyone can do enough, fast enough. Adding, this latest report closes a circle. The air that people breathe in many Chinese cities, which we've talked about in this program, has become dangerously polluted. Their food supply is subject to constant contamination scandals. Now it appears that not merely stagnant ponds, but the water drawn from deep underground is already tainted. This is a giant problem for them and for everyone. And uh, speaking of contaminated water, how about this item that uh, I think you may have noticed in the press this week, dear listener, which is that someone decided to test how fish exposed to anxiety medications might show altered behaviors. Since, as we all know, most of the drugs that we ingest in our bodies wind up passing out of our bodies into our urine and into sewage treatment plants. And from there, since it's not adequately treated, into our ecosystem, citing a piece by Brady Dennis in Health and Science on the web. If it's a wild, what happens to fish on drugs? If it's a wild European perch exposed to a popular anxiety medication, chances are it's antisocial, wanders away from the safety of its group, and devours food more quickly than its peers. All behaviors that could have profound ecological consequences, according to a forthcoming paper in the journal Science. The study aimed at further understanding the environmental impacts of pharmaceuticals that often wind up in the world's waterways through wastewater. Researchers in Sweden examined how perch behaved when exposed to oxazepam, a drug commonly used to treat anxiety disorders in humans. You may know it better as Cerax, its main brand name here in the U.S., but it is a first cousin of Valium, Ativan, and Xanax, which you may be more familiar with. The benzodiazepines do a pretty good job of quelling anxiety. Short-acting versions such as Halcyon are used also to help people with insomnia. But anyway, over in Sweden, the scientists exposed the fish to concentrations of the drug similar to those found in the waters near densely populated areas. The result, said the lead author of the article, normally perch are shy and hunt in schools. This is a known strategy for survival and growth. Those who swam in oxazepam became considerably bolder. They lost interest in hanging out with the group. I'd say clearly in this case, a little bit of anxiety can be a good thing. When you quell that in a perch or a human, there can be some dire consequences. The lead author in the study told an audience at the American Association for the Advancement of Science last week that researchers conducted a boldness test on the perch, opening a door that would allow them to swim from a small box into a much larger water tank, The fish with no drugs in their system remained timid and didn't come out at all. 
while those on oxazepam did. He said, we think it's working through stress relief on the fish. It removes the fear of being eaten. Ouch. And uh, let's segue back into China, speaking of fear of being eaten, or at least of eating, or at least of eating Chinese cuisine. I didn't know what to make of this piece uh, from the Sacramento Bee by Stephen Maganini, which I guess I'll just quote from. This fall, the world's first Confucius Culinary Institute is scheduled to open at UC Davis, revealing the magic and mystery of Chinese cuisine dating back 2,500 years. UC Davis food alumnus Martin Chan, longtime host of the Yan Can Cook Show and previous Radio Parallax guest, will advise the, will advise the program, one of hundreds of Chinese language and cultural programs China has helped start in the United States. Yes, apparently China and India are sending us their graduate students to study engineering, and they're balancing that off by teaching American students how to cook Chinese food. But I guess if you think about it, it does sort of close the circle. All those hungry, successful engineers are going to have a taste for some high-quality Chinese food along the way. And thank God our American university graduates are going to be there to help provide it for them. have to say, my first reaction to this piece is to be stunned and flabbergasted. We enjoyed very much our talk with Martin Yan on this program some years back. But... uh, What's the deal? In the, in the follow-up to the piece, the headline on uh, page A8 or whatever it was says, program has critics who are wary of China government. They then quote a Peter Hershock, an educator specialist at the East-West Center, a U.S. think tank, who notes that American institutions partnering with the Confucius Institute ought to be aware of what they're getting. Said Mr. Hershock, it's China's effort to exercise soft diplomacy. They have the purpose of furthering China's own interests in the international sphere, much like the U.S. government's Fulbright program, spreading U.S. values. Adding, it's incumbent on U.S. schools to be aware that we're establishing a relationship with a country that has a checkered record on human rights from the U.S. perspective. And we are going to need to follow up on this story. A checkered record indeed. I mean, you have to think so when you read this little item in the news this past week. Chinese courts have convicted eight Tibetans for encouraging self-immolation protests against Beijing's rule over Tibet. One of the eight, a monk, was given a suspended death sentence while the others got long prison terms. Nearly 100 Tibetan monks, nuns, and lay people have set themselves on fire since 2009 to protest the lack of religious freedom. Article in the week quotes Sophie Richardson, China director for Human Rights Watch, is saying the Chinese government appears to be expending considerable resources on prosecuting and criminalizing immolations, but not on understanding or ameliorating the concerns that appear to be driving them. Radio Parallax has no information on whether if you survive your attempt to burn yourself to death, the Chinese government then institutes the death penalty. We just don't know. I think we need some good news at this point. So let's go back to fish. At least the piece by Jason Deereen from the Bee, noting that uh, a key Pacific fishery is coming back. Dateline Half Moon Bay. After one of the West Coast's most valuable economic fisheries was declared an economic disaster in the year 2000, California and other Pacific states saw more boats being sold and more fishermen looking for work. 
Federal statistics show the first signs of a comeback among these so-called groundfish fishermen, those who ply deep waters for dozens of different species that fall under the groundfish label, such as sablefish, rockfish, and thorny heads. Conservation efforts and a contentious two-year-old quota system called cat shares appear to be helping, and fishermen who were losing money in the once lucrative fishery are are in the black again, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration data. Peace notes that some fishermen initially skeptical of the stricter government oversight say they're now seeing the long-term benefits of this approach, and hard-hit fishing towns are seeing signs of recovery. All right, let's see if we can close with an item that combines fish, corrupt officials, and bad water policy. An article from last March 1st, Sacramento Bee from Matt Weiser, which I just want to quote from briefly. The headline is, State, Water Tunnels May Harm Fish for a Time. To quote from the piece, A controversial project to alter water diversions in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta could initially harm some smelt and salmon species, but state officials say those fish will benefit in the long run. Yeah, last March, the state's Natural Resources Agency, which is leading the project, released more than 5,000 pages of new analysis. And no, we don't know whether they've been drinking water laced with oxazepam, but this correspondent does have his suspicions. But I'm sorry, Matt Weiser's a great reporter. He's doing the best he can, but I just have to quote some of our state officials here. Quoting their documents... The longfin smelt and winter-run Chinook salmon could initially decline in populations as a result of diversions into the tunnels and other water management changes. To which we would add, yes, fish don't do as well when you take away their water. But the planners assert that 110,000 acres of new wetland and floodplain habitat restored over the project's 50-year span, yeah, 50 years in the future, things will be great, would reverse declines by offering more breeding and feeding areas. Okay, here's the deal. Loan me 100 bucks today, because I swear 50 years from now, you're going to double your money. If you're willing to go along with this, particularly if you work for the state water agencies, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We will continue to cover this epic scam as things develop. And we're really overdue for breaks. Let's take one. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We got more. Stick around. <laughs> 